passage. Ephesians 5:22 through 6:9. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality within him. Lord, once again, we ask for your help, for your guidance, for your Holy Spirit to have his way, Lord, in our hearts, that we would be fed and nurtured with your word, but Lord, at the same time, challenged, convicted, molded, and shaped, Lord, to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, as your messenger, that you would simply use me as your mouthpiece to reflect your truth to your people. And Lord, we ask for your help now in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So let me ask you a question. How can you spot a spirit-filled father? What does he look like? How can you spot a spirit-filled mother? What does she look like? And the harder question is how can you spot a spirit-filled child? All right, what does that child look like? And some of you say there ain't no such thing, right? Well, um, I beg to differ. But let me ask you some further questions here. If I were to come over to your home this afternoon and sit down with your family, your whole family, and ask your children the following question, what would they say? Do your parents ever drive you crazy to the point of frustration and discouragement? Now, I'm not, you're not supposed to answer verbally, okay? So just be mindful of that, right? Do your parents ever drive you crazy to the point of frustration and discouragement? What would they say? What examples would they give as justification for their answers? Well, my parents don't listen to me. My parents don't really care what I think. They just want me to obey them no matter what. They don't trust me. They treat me like I'm a little kid. I wish that they would just stop yelling all the time. I'm sure we could add a number of responses to that. But young people, if I turned the tables and asked the parents the following question, what would they say? Do you ever get discouraged because your children disobey you? 
And the parents might say yes, but they're quick to resolve things. Or yes, it hurts that they don't honor and respect me as a parent. Or they say sadly yes, they don't want to listen to what I have to say, they are convinced that they know it already. Or yes, more often than not, they don't respect my words and my authority in the home. Well, one well-known writer reflected on his culture and said the following, our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for their elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room, they contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up their food and tyrannize their teachers. That was Socrates in the fourth century BC. (laughs) Things haven't changed much, right? There is a cultural reality that there is tension between parent and child. Now if I were to ask you as an adult, point blank, what would you say to the following question? And here's the question. Have you been faithful to honor your parents since you have been outside of the home? Have you been faithful to honor your parents since you've been outside of the home? What would you say? Well, how are you providing for them? Do you check in on them to make sure that they're safe and healthy and feel secure? Do your parents know that they can count on you as they grow old? These are important questions. Not just important questions for life, but they're important questions to God. You see, God has called his children to a life of mutual submission that takes place between believers and especially in the context of the household. And that is what we read in chapter five, verse 21. Let me just remind you of that. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And just a a quick reminder there that that is the last piece of instruction and identification as to what a spirit-filled person looks like. They look like someone who is understanding this mutual submission relationship and it is foundational then for the understanding of how we then are to live our lives in the context of home. Now mutual mutual submission by definition would be this. Because we are in Christ, we will submit to one another based on our God-given roles and instructions in a way that honors God. Because we are in Christ, we will submit to one another based on our God-given roles and instructions in a way that honors God. And so last week, we looked at the relationship of husband and wife. And this is the spirit-filled marriage. And we saw there that there were two different roles, but the exercise of those roles by the wife, by the husband, are actually a means by which they are fulfilling and satisfying this this call of God to be mutually submissive to one another. God has placed on the shoulders of the man an authority, and we turn that around and say a responsibility that the wife must nestle herself under. When God looks down on the marriage, he looks down on that marriage through the lens of the husband. He is the head of the home in that sense. He is the head of his Wife, And so in that passage there we saw this relationship and there's more to say about that. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to it and it will be on the website. Today we're going to look at the spirit-filled family and next week we'll look at the spirit-filled vocation where we're taking the idea of slave and master and applying it in the context of, of life and that typically is going to flesh out in the context of the workplace. But now let's think a little bit about this idea of children. And it's worth noting that the embrace of Christianity did bring a radical change to the way people lived and how things took place in the context of the home. And some more than others. Again, last week we emphasized in the relationship of marriage, there was a Hellenistic culture as well as a liberal arm of Judaism 
that the message for the husbands to love their wives was incredibly radical because in those contexts, the husband was not only the head, but he was the king, so to speak. And he could treat his wife how he wanted to. But the same is true when we come to this passage that ultimately elevates the position of children within the home. Listen to the the law of patria potestas, literally the father's power in the Roman context. It says this, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves, he could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for law was in his own hands, and he could punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Further, the power of a Roman father extended over the child's whole life, so long as the father lived. A Roman son never came of age. Now see, this is a context that we're not used to, and this is why it's really important as we're studying God's word, we must, as we say, travel through the the actual location and destination to which this is written. This is a message or a letter written to the church in Ephesus, and what was life like in Ephesus? We have to understand it in that context before we come here to 2014. This was the attitude toward children. And a father in his relationship with that child could just in a moment say, you know what, I'm going to sell you as a slave. There's no security in that, is there? I mean, that is a bondage in and of itself. But not only that, the father had the right when the child was born to reject it outright. And historians tell us that when the baby was born, it was placed before the father, and if the father stooped down and lifted the child, the child was accepted and was raised as his. If the father turned away, the child was rejected and was discarded, either to die or was placed in the hands of traffickers who would sell them either into slavery or into prostitution. Now, it's just hard for us to imagine that. So when we talk here about the role of a child and the role of father in the context of the, the body of Christ and what it means to be a, 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 a God-honoring, spirit-filled family, the instructions that are given here are radical for that culture. And so we must recognize the beauty of what God is doing through the words of Paul here. We have a record of a father from Alexandria writing back to his wife in anticipation of the birth of their child, and he says the following. If, good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. Not the kind of letter you would expect to receive. So it's into this context then, and this this culture that Paul is writing these words, and this good news that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ liberates not only a a wife, a child, a husband, but liberates a family to a new kind of living, a new kind of attitude toward family relationships that is so contrary to the culture in which they live. Now just think about the culture in which we live. And there are ways in which our culture has embraced certain attitudes or is even apathetic. All right, when was the last time you heard someone really get upset about abortion? I mean, it used to be something that people would get upset about, but now it's just kind of like, okay, it's just an accepted reality. I'm talking about our culture. I'm not talking about the church, and that's a whole other issue, but in our culture, it's just kind of like, eh, it's just accepted, it's just there. We've turned a blind ear, or a blind eye, we've closed our ears off, and it's just now part of the norm. Now friends, as, as those who are in Christ, our children are a gift from God to be loved, to be nurtured, and equipped for life through Christ, and it is a great privilege, it is also a great and weighty responsibility. And friends, there there needs to be some realism as we come to this text. For being a perfect child and perfect parenting is not a reality. There's no perfect child apart from Christ, and there's no perfect parent. Okay? 
And the reality is God-given or God, God's family relationships, relationships within the family, are between sinful parents and sinful children. They do not develop naturally. They require much effort. They require a spirit-filled mutual submission that seeks to honor God. So if we could just pause for a second and say this. If you are a child and you're present here this morning, God has a message for you. And that message is begin to learn to see that there is a way that God wants you to be a child in the context of the home. And if you are a parent, God has a message for you. There's a way that you parent those children that is an expression of that mutual submission and God wants you to grab a hold of it, he wants you to understand it, and he wants you to do your best with his strength to live that out. But there's also another aspect and that is as parents and even as children, there is this responsibility to honor our parents and that doesn't necessarily just focus in on the home, it also focuses in on relationships that we have with our parents that are ongoing when we're outside the home. So let's focus in now on what I'm calling the spirit-filled child, the spirit-filled child. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Now it's worth noting, isn't it, that Paul is addressing children in this letter. Now why is that significant? Because Paul expected the children to be listening to the reading of this letter. If he's addressing them, he's expecting them to listen. A letter like this would be taken by the hands of, of, of a, a courier, and it could be Timothy, it could be Titus, it could be someone like that, taken to Ephesus, dropped off there, and when it's there, it would travel around the various churches that are there, and it would be read in the context of that church. And children would be present to hear the instruction from Paul to them. Now what's important here is this. I don't know why, but in our culture today, there's this idea that children just can't handle this. They can't sit still for long enough. You know, the, the attention span is supposed to be 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, it's done. Well, if you tell someone that enough times, guess what? They're going to say, my 20 minutes are over. Now I want to do what I want to do. But I'm telling you something, I think far more of our children than society wants to. I think our children can handle it. When I've gone to speak at the, the local Christian schools and I'm speaking to middle schoolers, you know, well, you know, middle schoolers, they can't handle it, their minds are all over the place. They can handle it. And I tell them, you can handle this. I'm glad I can be here. I have 45 minutes. I expect you to pay attention. You can do it. How do I know that? Because you can watch a basketball game. And you can watch a football game, and you can play a video game, and you can play there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to be sure you can focus in here. And so he's emphasizing here, just simply by addressing the children, that they can handle it. Not only that, that children need instruction from the word. And I want to say this just, just carefully, but also boldly here. They need to be under the preaching of the word. Now sometimes it's going to come in the context of here, but... Even in the context of, of a classroom, just kind of a, a, a soft, kind of just kind of mellow teaching may not always be sufficient. Sometimes those children need to hear the word of God boldly and clearly at their level. And we want to make sure that we're, we're including that in the context of what we're doing. So when we have a Sunday where the, the, the older kids are not in their class and they're in here, I'm thrilled. Why? Because of this. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit can work through that in the lives of those children. They need to be here, they can handle it, and they need the gospel, okay? They need to know that they're in Christ and that there are expectations that God has for them that they can hear from the word of God. So, if some of you here this morning and you're a child in the home, as I mentioned, God is specifically addressing you with these truths. Um, and if you are a parent, God is specifically addressing these truths to you also. Now, in these few verses, there are four dynamics 
of the command given to children as they relate to their parents that is a mark of a spirit-filled character. All right, we see the, the commands here intertwining the, the nature, the scope, the motivation, and ultimately the purpose of these commands. They're all working together to paint a picture of what it means to be a spirit-filled child that is in Christ, okay? Now, let's first of all notice what I'm calling the nature of the command, the nature of the command. Children are to submit to parents in two ways. The first thing is that they are to obey. Secondly, they are to honor. Let's think about what those words mean. To obey primarily, primarily refers to an action or a behavior, okay? It comes from two words, to listen and under. So obedience is not just doing what you're told. Obedience um, is the idea of listening for understanding so that you can do. So you can be obedient and just do what you're told, but, but true obedience is when that child comes to the parent and they listen to the instructions for the purpose of understanding so that they can go and do, okay? And what happens is oftentimes there's a breakdown in that listening part, right? Because the child thinks, I already know what the parent wants, and they go and do what they think they're supposed to do, and they end up going and doing something, and the parent comes and says, that's not what I told you to do, because they didn't listen to the instructions, all right? So the idea there is obedience. Secondly, to honor then primarily refers to attitude, okay? So you've got this action of obedience, you have this attitude of honor. It speaks to the attitude of the heart that goes beyond mere outward obedience. So to honor your parents means to love them, to respect them, to show them a high regard, to be considerate of what they're saying, of what their wishes are. Now we may eventually outgrow our call to obey our parents. As we get older, as we step out of the home, there comes this time of transition, and we, we, we come out of that, that responsibility of obeying our parents. This kind of ties in with marriage, too, when this, this responsibility is transferred at a wedding ceremony from the father to, the, to this, this groom. Um, the, the responsibility is transitioned over, and we can say, as, as this lady submits now, she is fulfilling that other responsibility. But... We will never outgrow our call to honor our parents. Big distinction there. Shelving, neglecting, and forgetting parents in their old age is a mark of dishonor. And a dishonoring society will act and behave much like the Pharisees who chose to justify their dishonor of parents by couching it in spiritual terms, rationalizing it away. Turn your Bibles, I just want you to see this. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and beginning at verse three. And Jesus is gonna confront these attitudes. Matthew 15, verse three says this. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And what's the commandment of God to honor your father and mother, okay? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But, you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your own tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, we're talking here about a religious group of people who might want to say had their religious Pharisee club. And so rather than actually having monies that were present to help provide for their parents, what they would do is that they would put it into the club and say, ah, it's given to God. Well, who would end up having the benefit of that money? They would. It was a way to skirt around this responsibility of actually taking care of their parents with the money. Okay? Now, but the point here is this, we can, if we're not careful, be guilty of finding rationalizations for not honoring our parents as they grow older by justifying some spiritual approach, um, you know, some practical investment that you have, whatever it might be, that would hinder you from actually being faithful to honor your parents. 
So a spirit-filled child is to submit to their parents by following the twofold command to obey and to honor their parents. But now there's the scope of this command because it says, in the Lord, right? So there is, there is a parameter here. There's a qualifier. This tells us that their obedience and honor was both for the Lord, for his glory, but also according to his will. So to, to have this obedience as being in the Lord, it's a reflection of, you know what? God determines what the scope is. God determines what the parameters are. God determines um, what his will is. And so that child must conform his behavior and his honoring to what God says. So in other words, this little phrase limits the scope of their obedience. They are not to violate anything that God would ask them to do. And this is what the parallel passage in Colossians also teaches us. Colossians 3.20 says this, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. But it is also a general principle for all believers that if anything being asked of us by anyone is in clear violation of God's will, we should not do it. That's what Peter and John had in mind in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, when the Jewish leaders commanded them to stop spreading the gospel, they said in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than to God, we must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And the tension there was they wanted to obey the authority. But the, the command to obey that authority is always canceled out, so to speak, if it violates God's command. And so that child is never to be obedient to a parent who wants them to either be immoral or illegal, they have a higher call to obey God rather than their parents. So it's in the Lord. It's according to his will. It's in a way that would please him. So that is the, the scope. We've seen the, the nature of it. We've seen the scope of it. Now let's think a little bit about the motive behind the command. Again, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul then identifies two motives that legitimize and fuel this commandment. First of all, what I'm calling the natural law, or the law of, it shouldn't be the law of nature, it should be the natural law, sorry. Um, uh, and, and the idea here is this. This motivation is not, not limited to the arena of Christianity. This is actually a universal truth you'll find in all societies that parents expect their children to do what? To be obedient. All right? In that sense, it's, it's, this is a, a, a natural law. You can go to societies all around this world and parents will expect their children to do what they are asking them to do. Okay? The natural law also points to a higher purpose that God is saying, hey, listen, you know what? Not only are you to obey your parents, but you're also to obey authorities. And ultimately, that obedience is a reflection of the fact that you need to obey me. Okay? So to teach this child then um, to be obedient to their parents is to teach the child to obey all authorities especially God. There's a reflection of God dynamic in your parenting that shows the child and others that God is worthy to be obeyed. Now it's interesting, I think that scripture um, identifies disobedience and dishonoring of a child as a result of a debased mind. Romans 1.28 And then also uh, the, the consequences of a disobedient or rebellious child are pretty stark. Here's one classic verse that is pulled out. I'm sure if you're a Christian parent, you've used this every once in a while at dire moments, but it's Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Now go to sleep, honey. Um, it'll be all right, you know, after that picture of horrible things, right? So, um, but the, the, the point there is God takes these things seriously. All right? The motive behind this is that there is something natural 
about a child obeying its parent. There's also something divine in this command. It is the first commandment with a promise. And those of you that are astute know that the first commandment that is given is not this. This is actually the fifth commandment, but it is the first commandment that is given as it relates to relationship with other people. Okay, so there's this first commandment with a promise. And so this is part of the divine law. In other words, it's natural, it's divine. These are motivators then for this child to be obedient and to honor their parents. But not only that, there's a promise that we're given. Children uh, must obey and honor their parents because God commands it. And quite frankly, that's reason enough, right? God commands it, we should be doing it. But Paul gives the children some further benefits to being submissive, spirit-filled children, and these reasons come to us in the form of these promises. Verse three, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So to, that it may go well with you, in other words, a good life, uh, that you may live long in the land, in other words, a long life. So a good life and a long life. Now these are not guarantees. These are not like, you know, this is always gonna be true, but this is a general truth. Now just listen to some other Proverbs, Proverbs 4.10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. All right, so you listen to your dad. Well, the general implication here is you're gonna have long life. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Okay, so if I fear God in this context of by, by, by listening to my parents and obeying them and honoring them, there will be long life. If I'm wicked, it will be short. Let's just practically think about this in three ways. A child that honors and obeys his parents will likely, first of all, be kept safe because as they interact with their parents, as the parent gives them counsel, they'll be kept out of harm's way when that child listens to the parent's instructions. It's just kind of a logical outflow. They will be kept safe, right? Because they're listening and applying what their parents have told them. Secondly, they will likely have good friends because they're listening to the counsel and the guidance and the help and the wisdom of their parents. And in keeping good friends, they will probably avoid the, the contagious habits that bad friends have, right? And the third thing is they will, they will likely develop a healthy character rather than a harmful behavior because they're listening to the counsel and the wisdom of a parent that would say, hey, listen, you know what? You've got some stubbornness going on there. Or no, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Well, All right, you know, are you gonna listen? Because as a parent, you want the best for your child, right? You want them to learn to interact with people in a way that would honor God and is commonly acceptable uh, to those people. And so as, as they listen to the parents, the parents are gonna counsel and guide them, and there are gonna be some natural outflows of that, okay? So, so let's just be, be honest with the fact that a, a spirit-filled child has been given by God two commands, to obey and to honor, and they are to do those things in, in a context of in the Lord, okay? motivated by, um, by these, these realities that God has given them here, this natural law and this divine law, as well as these promises. You want to live long? You want to have a, a, a full life and a long life? Then, then take this command seriously, young people, children. Don't balk at it. Love it. Now, it may be frustrating. My parents are telling me I have to clean my room again. Well, you know, once a year is not too much to ask, you know? All right? Or once a month or once a week. And what, you know, we, we, we all kind of struggle with things that we're forced to do. That's just true as adults and as children. But your parents are trying to instill something in you, okay? And be thankful for that and obey them. And then honor them. And I think I have found that as my children have grown older, they kind of come back and they say, thank you for X, Y, Z. I needed that. Now they're the ones that are way older, right? 
The ones that are not whaled are still trying to sort that thing out, right? But you know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, you know, I'm, now I understand why they were doing that. All right? So spirit-filled children. God, God has a direction for you who are children, you who are young people, you who are still in the home to obey and honor your parents. And there are payouts for you if you take that seriously, okay? Now let's turn things around and let's look at the spirit-filled parent, okay? Verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now as you read this text, you notice that the word parents is paralleled with father and mother in chapter six, verses one and two, right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord. And then verse two, honor your father and mother. But now in verse four, it just simply says fathers. Now why is that the case? Is it because Paul doesn't care about mothers? Is that the idea? Don't mothers from the earliest time in the children's lives bear more influence on them than the fathers? Yes. Don't they spend more time with their children than their fathers do? Yes. Um, Aren't they the ones who all day put up with the children's bad behavior? Yes. And aren't they the ones who become the real symbols of discipline in the home on the day-to-day and hour-by-hour basis? The answer is yes. But see, in in our society where we no longer live, might wanna say, on a farm or in in a communal village, where dad is away for so long. I mean, we're in the Bay Area, many people commute, some of you do this, you're, you're up at you know, 5.30, six o'clock, and you don't get home till six, maybe seven o'clock. Um, dads can be gone for a long time, and mom is kind of left with those children. I mean, that's a common scenario that we're finding in, in our context. Um, so why is he addressing the fathers. I mean, isn't it the mothers that need some, some direction here? Uh, the answer is this. When Paul speaks to the fathers, he is speaking to the mothers. Now, let me explain this. In addressing the fathers, he's addressing the one whom God has vested his authority for discipline. In other words, just like the husband has the responsibility to care for his wife as the head of his body, so the father has the God-given responsibility as the head of the home. And husbands and fathers will stand before God and give account for their faithfulness to God for their responsibility. So the essence of the instructions in verse four are for both parents. But it is the father that is ultimately responsible to see that mutual submission is taking place and being nurtured in that home. So the flip side of that is not saying, hey, moms, you get a free pass here. (laughs) It's just that you are carrying out this responsibility under the umbrella of responsibility of the father, or in that case, of the husband. All right? So let me remind you that a family exercising mutual submission was not the norm in Paul's day and in particular, as it relates to the relationship of the father with the children. Now, we're given here, first of all, a negative instruction, what to avoid, and specifically it says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this definition a couple of times if you wanna get it down. This is referring to the ongoing pattern of treatment that results in the, child's, in, the, sorry, in the child building up a deep-seated anger and resentment that eventually boils over in hostility. So this is the ongoing pattern of treatment that results in the child building up a deep-seated anger and resentment that eventually boils over in hostility. Now, if we, if we were to go to a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul actually uses a different word. Um, here we say, 
you know, don't provoke your children to anger. In Colossians, it says, chapter three, verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So you got this anger and you got this discouragement thing going on here. These are, these are things you do not want to be responsible for in your children, all right? Especially if they're coming not because they're being confronted with truth that they have to wrestle with, but with sin on the part of the parent in their parenting, in their lifestyle, in their behavior. So how do we provoke our children to the point that they are seething with resentment? Glad you asked. Um, I'm gonna give you 11 ways. Um, I would encourage you, uh, the, the book, The Heart of Anger by Lou Priolo lists 25 different ways that we can do that. I've just chosen 11 out of that to help us here this morning, but there are are just tons of ways that we can provoke our children. Number one, inconsistency. Inconsistency. Vacillating discipline from day to day and between parents. The child, when that happens, has really no framework to know what to expect. And so it becomes very discouraged. That's why consistency and structure and knowing what the consequence is gonna be for different things is important. Um, Indecision, I thought about putting this in one here, but I I waited to the last minute to do it. Um, Just seeing if you guys are awake or not, all right? Um, Indecision, not willing to make a decision until the last minute because you you have to. It leaves opportunities up in the air or missed and makes it hard to plan, and that can be really, really frustrating um, on your children, in particular as they're growing older, and I've experienced that myself, and I'm certainly guilty of this one. Um, Marital disharmony. Children can be angered or discouraged when their parents argue, fight, and simply don't get along. That's really, really important that maybe um, you think through if you have something you need to talk about that you're more strategic about it than just simply bleh in the car or wherever it might be. Because um, it can be really discouraging and it ultimately can anger your children. Unreasonable expectations. Children are not all the same, nor are they adults. So what's important here is that... Um, you know, you may have one child that can, can barely try and get all A's, and you have another child who just works and works and works and works and works, and they get all C's. And for that parent to expect that child who's getting C's to get all A's could very well be an unreasonable expectation that would cause great discouragement and ultimately cause anger in that child toward the parent. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, they could. They've been playing PlayStation for hours and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about realistic, unreasonable expectations. The child may not understand what you might think is simple. Hey, go over there and do such and such. You've done it plenty of times, but you're asking the child to do something there. I have no idea what you're talking about. But you're expecting them to do it and to do it right. That can be really, really frustrating. All right, another one, unkindness. Unkindness. Scolding, harsh words, rudeness, lacking gentleness, unkindness. Number six, overprotection. Not allowing children to demonstrate responsibility, faithfulness, and trust. Now, how many of you here want to protect your children? Yeah. Uh, now the question is, uh, you know, where is the line of that overprotection? And for different families, it's going to be different things. You know, and also depends on where you live, um, you know, what's going on, who you're with. There's all sorts of different things. But you know, and, and, you, you know, young people and children, you need to understand that, that if you're, you think your parents are being overprotective, um, that, that overprotection is out of love. But that also can, can be extreme to the point of, you know, I can't do anything with anyone anytime. And that can be really, really discouraging and result in anger. Here's another one. Fault finding. A critical, condemning, accusing, judgmental attitude where the child ends up believing that there is nothing he or she can do um, to win the parent's approval. 
just constantly finding something wrong, constantly accusing, constantly um, you know, judging uh, or making judgments about the child's thinking or attitude or whatever it might be when that child is um, either you know, perceived not listening or whatever it might be, but just fault finding. Um, another one, um, and that would be favoritism, favoritism. All right? Now, the classic story of favoritism in the Bible would be what? Any thoughts there? Joseph, right? I mean, there's a few, but Joseph would be what? Because he had the coat of many colors, and he was the firstborn of, right, for, and, and the, the point here in, in Joseph's life, you might say, well, Joseph was really arrogant. You know, there's a sense in which I actually have a little compassion for Joseph because he was treated by his father that way. He was put in those places. He was elevated in that sense. And sometimes parents do that with their children. And they, they kind of, you know, we create favorites. You know, if you were just like your brother or your sister who did X, Y, Z, you know, and wow, I can just really, really just pull the plug and just zap that, that child's energy and power and really discourage them. Favoritism's not good, all right? I mean, I, I experienced this as the youngest child. Some of you may understand this. Um, my parents stopped putting up Christmas stockings when my brother reached the age of 20. But see, I was five years younger. I'm like, what, what, I lost five years. How come my brother gets five years of Christmas stockings and I don't? Okay, now obviously that's a silly illustration, but you know, parents think, what could you be doing that could be causing discouragement and, and portraying favoritism, okay? Number nine. Not, you, know, you guys are really learning more about me, aren't you? It's like, Pastor Ra's really discouraged, all right, all right? Not listening to your child's opinion or taking their side of the story seriously. Why bother telling my parents what I feel? They don't care. They just want to be right and to get what they want to do. Your, your, your children have a mind, have an opinion, have thoughts. And as a parent, your job is to help them sort through those and, and kind of bring the gospel to bear in that. But if you're not, if that child doesn't feel like you're even listening to them, that can cause great discouragement and ultimately end up in deep-seated anger. Number 10, not admitting that you were wrong and not asking for forgiveness. This is the Arthur Fonzarelli problem, right? Not admitting, admitting that you were wrong. If you don't know what that is, that's fine. If you do, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's difficult for parents to ask for forgiveness, um, especially when they're wrong. But we have the responsibility of modeling forgiveness before our children. What does that look like? A parent can walk them through when they have sinned against that child, going through, hey, this is what I did against you. I was wrong to behave in this way. It dishonored God, it dishonored you. Will you please forgive me? I've sinned against you. I wanna be right with you. And how that parent responds in that way, hopefully will be reciprocated by that child saying, okay, if I need to get things right with my parents, this is how I can do it, okay? And then number, number 11, um, a fear of what other people might think. Now, you know, sometimes, sometimes that can really consume us. What are my neighbors gonna think? What, what is my church family gonna think? I, I hope that in the context of Gateway, we understand that family life and training is always in a flux. And you're going to have some weeks when that child is just going crazy, and you have some ch weeks when that child is just like, I mean, they're just a walking Christian. They can quote scripture. They can, you know. But listen, I mean, raising kids is, is going to have seasons to it. And if we start, oh, did you see them? And did you see what that person did? Did you see what they, oh, and you know I heard, and we are in trouble. As opposed to, hey, let's pray for, for them. They're going through a rough season with X, Y, and Z, you know, child. And, and let's come around them because each child is unique. And ultimately that child is responsible, yes, to the parents, but responsible to God. 
And although a parent may provoke, we recognize that may be true, but a child is responsible for how they respond even to that provoking. And that's something before God. That doesn't mean, okay, well then, that child responded negatively and sinfully even when I provoked, so the focus now is on the child. No, you need to think about the provoking, but you then can also deal with the child's response to it. That's life, isn't it? It's also parenting. And there's a mutual submission that is going here. What a beautiful picture of mutual submission when a parent asks forgiveness from their child for something they did, having a bad attitude, or maybe one of the things here that were provoking issues. All right, so there's a negative. What, some things to avoid. Don't provoke your children to anger. Now, some things not to avoid. Oh. Some things to pursue, to bring them up, to bring them up. What to pursue. So this is not just avoid, don't do them, and now just kind of sit back idly. No, these are some action words. These are things that we must be pursuing, we must be doing as parents. And we might skip by this first one, but it is actually bring them up. And it's really, really important. The, the word literally means to nourish or to feed. Look at chapter five and verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just like, or just as Christ does the church. So this is the example of Christ nourishing the church, and therefore you go back to, um, you go back to the responsibility of, of how the husband is to nourish his wife, and the same idea here now is found in this relationship with these children this idea of bringing them up is literally to nourish them by feeding. That's the picture here, all right? So it's nurturing these children. So there's, there's, it's not just kind of like raise them, it's actually nurture them. And here's what John Calvin says as he translates this passage. He says, bring them up, by, he translates it this way, let them be kindly cherished. And then he goes on to emphasize the overall idea as gentleness and friendliness with those children. Are you gentle? Are you friendly with your children? Or is it constantly, hey, sit down, be quiet, go to your room, do your homework, you know? It's too noisy. Command, command, or is there gentleness and there's their kindness that's happening in the, the context? All three of these words are gonna, gonna work together here. Now, this is both a fatherly and motherly trait. We understand a mother being tender with that child, but we're a little cautious about fathers being tender with that child. But there's something God-centered and manly about a father being tender and gentle with his children. And this is shown through affection, both verbal and physical. Now, young people, I want you to hear this. You may not think that it's cool to have your mom or dad kiss you or hug you. And I know, maybe not in front of school with all your friends watching, But in God's eyes, and I think deep down in your heart, that's what you want. You want to know your parents love you and care about you, and you want that affection. You want that affirmation. And so there is a gentleness, and there is this, this friendliness, this, this nurturing dynamic that is necessary for, for us as parents with our children. Secondly, there's this word discipline, okay? We're called to discipline our children. The idea is that of systematic training that involves the correction of wrongdoing. So it includes training and punishment as well uh, as the well-known Proverbs says, um, Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Okay, love in a parental relationship is expressed by discipline. Not abuse, discipline. Not by getting a beaten, but discipline. 
And sometimes that means the use of a rod as a means of getting that child's attention to listen to what's being said so that there can be this training. And it starts, you know, when the little ones are as little as they can be. You'll find out there's a time when that child starts to fight against you, right? Ever notice, moms and maybe even dads, when that, that, you know, you have this little infant. I mean, it's just not old at all, but it's arching its back and it's fighting you with every, right? And it's just this little tiny thing. You didn't have to tell it to get angry with you, okay? It's that sin nature that's in all of us that just comes out real early. And God has given us this great responsibility to nurture that and to, to train that and to discipline that child, okay? Not only that, the word is instruction. Nuthasia uh, is the word here. And it literally means to put into the mind. So this, this has this idea of confrontation, correction, training that comes as a result of the teaching. In other words, there's teaching about here's what you need to be doing, here's what God's called you to do, but now, um, since you're not doing it, there needs to be some confrontation that brings you back to the word and shows you what, what needs to take place. And there's actually a negative example um, in um, the book of First Samuel. I'm sure you're fully aware of it, um, but it's the life of, of Eli, who's the, the high priest. And I want you to listen to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 11 and following. And here's what we have recorded. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which... Uh, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, so get that, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And what's important here to see is that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word restrain in 1 Samuel 3, 13, is the same word that is used here, instruction in Ephesians 6, 4. So it's a refusal then to actually instruct and to confront with the word of God. God's calling us as parents to say, listen, you and I must be teachers of the word. We must be training through the word. It must be the basis for how we are directing and counseling them. And faithful parenting seeks to be clear and forthright with the word and from the word. Gently and lovingly confronting sinful attitudes and behaviors and teaching the children God's counsel, warnings, and truth. Now, what will this gentle discipline and training look like? And I just simply want us to look back a few verses. I think this kind of sum, sums up in a good way what God is calling us to do. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. So we want to teach our children to be careful how they walk, right? Then it says not as unwise, but wise. We want to teach them wisdom. Doesn't that remind you of the book of Proverbs? Wisdom's all through the book of Proverbs. So we want to instruct them in the word. We want to show them how the gospel fuels them to live uh, in a way that pleases God. We want to point them to Christ, who always forgives in re uh, a repentant heart, to, to walk carefully um, in this world, to be wise, not, not uh, unwise, but to be understanding, not foolish, and to be spirit-filled, not allowing anything else to control their lives, whether that be sports or media or cute boys or cute girls, the in crowd, whatever it might be, that it is, it is Christ, it is the spirit that is controlling them. And then, how to communicate through words and through song, how to praise God for his goodness and his kindness toward them, and how to be submissive to others who have been given responsibilities by God that mean that they are an authority. And that's maybe just a place for us to begin in the context of the book of Ephesians. Now some concluding thoughts. Um, four things I wanna leave us with just to think through here. As you seek to make changes 
um, based on this text, as God would encourage you, as the Holy Spirit is directing you, I wanna just emphasize here that this, this, this application, first of all, needs to be personal. Oh, it needs to be personal. I guess it's not up there. All right, something happened with that. I made some changes I noticed earlier that weren't on there, so maybe it's not, it didn't save or something. Uh, first of all, it must be personal. In other words, look at yourself first and foremost. If you're a parent, you focus on the parenting side of things. If you're a child, don't be sitting around saying, yeah, mom, you know, these are all the ways that Pastor Rod said you provoke me. No, you focus on what God is saying about you. You do business with yourself. And what are you doing as a child? And what are you then doing as a parent that the Holy Spirit is grabbing a hold of you and squeezing you with and saying, listen, I need your attention here. I need you to see what is sin what do you need to change? So begin working on those areas in your life. Don't point your finger at someone else and start prodding them about things in them. This is personal. Secondly, be prayerful. As you seek to make some of these changes in your submission um, and responsibility, be sure to approach it bathed in prayer. You, you cannot change on your own. You'll change temporarily. But this is Holy Spirit living, which means you need his help. And left to yourself, you're going to fall flat on your face. You need the Holy Spirit's activity and work in your life. You need his control. You need his guidance. So you need to be in prayer to say, God, just help me today to see your truth again, to apply it, to be alert to my sinfulness. The third thing is this, be purposeful. Let me speak first of all to parents. Talk to your children about their sin and their failure. Talk to them about how you provoke them. Talk to them about your desire to work on your own character with the help of the Holy Spirit. Ask your kids to pray for you in those areas. That takes great humility. It doesn't mean that you've, that you've lost your authority as a parent. <laughs> this is the mutual submission dynamic. You're still the parent. You're still responsible. You're still an authority. But you know what? I am like you in that I sin in what I've been called to do. So to children, young people, don't be shocked. And be careful that you don't react to your parents wanting to reach out to you. I know one of the things that happens, you know, couples go off for a weekend retreat on the family, and the kids are at home going like, oh, it's gonna be awful when mom and dad get back, you know, all these rules are gonna be established, all these systems put in place, life is gonna be turned upside down, all right? And I'm just saying to you young people, you know, just be patient with your parents as they sort through some of their own things, okay? Pray for them. Now, the question I have for you is this. What are you doing with the things God has been teaching you this morning? If you want to have a healthy home life, it comes from both you and your parents talking through these things, being honest about these things. Now, if you have a problem with anger, if you have a problem with lying, if you have a problem with, with deception, if you have a problem with whatever it might be, it would be good for you to be honest and transparent and to talk to your parents about that area, to seek restoration and forgiveness, and to seek their help so that you can make progress and you can grow to be more like Jesus Christ in ridding yourselves of that ongoing sinful habit. So be willing to talk and to trust your parents with your words. See where you're being sinful and go to God first and then ultimately to your parents. So be purposeful. I'm asking parents and children to be purposeful. And then the final thing here is this. Be practical. Be practical. Look for opportunities to be teaching and training your children. One of the things that you can do is to start having family devotions. 
Now, if you're like our family, we have family devotions, and sometimes we don't have family devotions. And then we're like, wait a second, we need to have family devotions again. And so we get back into having family devotions. And those are, again, opportunities to interact over the Word of God, to pray for one another, to, to keep on uh, seeking to understand what's going on in, in each other's lives, and just to pause and just develop that habit. And I first want to say, we're, we're guilty of, of, of you know, having it, not having it, having it, not having it. But having it, not having it is better than not having it at all. So begin to have the pattern, begin at least to get it in place so that you can say, hey, we're gonna be having family devotions tonight. What does that mean? What does that look like? So that your kids are already in tune. Aha, uh-huh, we're gonna have it at seven o'clock and it's five o'clock right now. What do I need to do to prepare for that so I can have at least half an hour with my family? And especially if you've got younger ones, just establish that kind of, that, that habit in your family life. You will struggle to find time, but get in the habit of doing it and doing it with joy. Friends, God has called us to obey and honor our parents. And as parents, he's called us to be careful that we don't provoke, but also to encourage graciously and gently nourish or nurture our, our children through discipline and instruction. That's what a spirit-filled child looks like. That's what a spirit-filled parent looks like, according to Paul in this little letter to the Ephesian church. Lord, help us today. There is so much for us to consider here. First of all, Lord, there are things that, uh, that your Holy Spirit, I'm sure, is, is squeezing us about. Attitudes of the heart, behaviors, um, relationship struggles, Lord, that we have with our children or with our parents uh, or maybe with um, our, uh, our older parents, Lord, that we, um, uh, we have not seen or, or maybe they live far away from us. And Lord, just, just help us, Lord, to be humble to your Holy Spirit. And if there's some areas that we need help, Lord, may we come to you again and afresh. And may we talk to our spouses or children as they talk to their parents just to be able to, to see what it is that you're doing in us through your word. May our families, Lord, be strong because they're rooted in the gospel. May they be strong because they, uh, the, the word of God is the priority. And Lord, may they be strong because they see the importance of the Holy Spirit um, and, and his control being present in those relationships. Lord, help us as we live our lives for your glory to live in this mutual submission that recognizes the uniqueness of our roles, that, that there are some who have responsibility, which means authority, and there are some who have a responsibility to be under authority and to do that in a way, Lord, before you and for you, and Lord, that pleases you. And we need your help, Lord, to, to make all this happen. We thank you, Lord, for liberating us, Lord, from a society and a culture that has such distorted views to a community that is rooted in your gospel. We are so privileged, we're so thankful, and it's, Lord, all because of you. We ask this now in your name, amen.